Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number four of the Princess Bride class. The, no, it's class five, actually, of the Princess Bride class, come to think of it. The class in which we finally get to the movie. And I know some of you enter this class skeptical, thinking, I didn't finish talking about the ending last time, and I still had like four slides that I wanted to talk about, and there's no way I'm going to get through all those slides and still leave time to talk about the movies tonight. But, movie, one, one movie. But you're wrong. It's totally going to happen, um, and uh, you're you're going to see, and you're going to be amazed. So, but tonight I want to start first with announcements. Um, Neil, I oh yeah, okay. So the very first thing that Neil Ottenstein says is Buttercup's baby. No, we're not going to do Buttercup's baby tonight. This is what I will do. This is the <laughs> this is the compromise I will make. If we have time, I'll do it after. But I'm not going to take away time from the movie to talk about Buttercup's baby. I just can't. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Um, I've been, uh, I've been putting off uh, uh, too much uh, to, to, I can't possibly wait a minute longer, I'm going to explode. So, we're going to talk about the movie tonight. Um, but, uh, Neil, I hope we will get back to Buttercup's Baby. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to get back to Buttercup's Baby, but um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can, but definitely not tonight. Okay. All right. Let's, um... Oh, announcements. Quick. Announcements. All right. First of all, a very important... Actually, no, I'm not going to do that first. I'll do that last, because it's a very important announcement about our next books. Um, but I'll end with that one. Uh, first, two quick things. One, uh, I am back to my doing my uh, Lord of the Rings online Twitch stream. Uh, wh- what's today? Wednesday? T- uh, in two days, on Friday morning. I, ha- I had to miss it last week when I was on the road. I was able to do Academy class, but I wasn't able to do the Twitch stream because of the time of day, and just wasn't able to work out. Um, but uh, I am back to doing that this week, so uh, I urge you to join me, 12.30 p.m. on Friday, uh, and we're, I'm going to be back in the Shire and uh, exploring some of the northern and northwestern portions of the Shire. Um, so that should be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to getting back uh, to my Twitch stream. It's been, uh, I've been having such a good time uh, doing that. I find the Lotro world so rich and full of fun connections to the book to talk about. So um, I am, uh, so that's going to be happening again Friday, and the address for that is twitch.tv slash Lotro stream uh, is where that's going to be. Um, also, this coming weekend, I've announced this before, but the New York Tolkien Conference is happening in New York City, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to going down and speaking at that. Uh, I'm doing a joint performance uh, with John D. Bartolo and the Lonely Mountain Band, um, which is going to be sort of experimental and fun. Uh, and I'm also doing a poetry uh, reading workshop, uh, looking at some of Tolkien's uh, poems, which will also be fun. And Tom, by the way, I've decided I, I can't resist the temptation either. We're definitely going to have to have a sing-along uh, there. That's totally going to happen. Um, actually, Karita, I am going to sing. I'm not going to record a CD, though. Uh, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. But I promise uh, 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 poems will be sung uh, at, the, uh, at the, the poetry workshop at the, at the New York Tolkien Conference. So, uh, so that should be a lot of fun. Again, that's this coming Saturday. Uh, the what, what is Saturday? The 13th. Um, now, the big announcement, the big Mythgard Academy-related announcement, uh, is that uh, we have decided the slate of finalists uh, for our next two books to talk about in the Mythgard Academy. Um, and for those of you who are in the Mythgard Academy electorate, uh, you'll be getting an email asking you to vote, uh, uh, to choose, we're going to be choosing two of these to do for our next two books. Um, and uh, uh, if you are not in our electorate, well, it's not too late to get in our electorate. All you have to do is uh, make a donation to support Mythgard, and we will be happy to include you in our electorate. Um, uh, 
So okay, so the, f- the we actually had we were gonna put, do five, but it was really really tight, so we did six, and we chose six finalists instead. So our six finalists are Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, The Lays of Beleriand by J.R.R. Tolkien. That's Volume Three in the History of Middle Earth series, the one that comes right after uh, Book of Lost Tales Volume Two, which we just finished before this. Uh, Dracula by Bram Stoker. American Gods by Neil Gaiman, and A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Those are our six choices. Uh, I, this is a, a just, you know, I have been so impressed by the slate of books that have been put together by our electorate all the way along. I am really excited uh, uh, to uh, uh, to do this. So uh, anyway, yeah, Till We Have Faces, oh my goodness, Karita, absolutely, yeah. It's uh, I, the best piece of fiction C.S. Lewis ever wrote by miles and miles. Just incredible. Um, the Ways of Bolarian would be so cool. I've never, ever in my entire life taught either one of those works. I've never even touched in a classroom. Uh, the uh, the alliterative Children of Huron uh, should be awesome. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I actually have never read that book. I, I've been looking forward to it for a while, but I've been kind of saving myself because it's been nominated a couple times now. Uh, it's been one of those recurring nominees, which I sort of expect eventually will do. Uh, and... Um, as I've been kind of saving myself for that one, but uh, so I look forward to doing that. American Gods, uh, I know and really admire, and Hitchhiker's Guide, of course. Um, so anyway, um, it's uh, there's this is uh, this is this is this is a great slate. So whatever two we end up with here, uh, I think it's going to be it's going to be really it's going to be really awesome. Nancy asks, Nancy Fosberg asks, if we do Strange and Nora, will we talk about the miniseries? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I as soon as I got the uh, uh, as soon as Dr. Powell sent me the list of finalists, I uh, I immediately went on my went on my 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 iPhone app and was like, quick DVR the miniseries so I can watch it. So yeah, yeah, I would plan to talk about that. Um, that seems timely. Um, okay. Anyhow, um, yeah, yeah, the miniseries is starting right now. So yep, I've got I've got it uh, I've got it recorded and we're doing it. Now Jordan asks if we do Dracula, will we do the uh, the any of the movies? Boy, Jordan, that's a tough one. Um, I'm actually quite. F- I, we can talk about that. I have to admit, I'm quite fond of Dracula movies. Um, in fact, uh, because I'm I am inordinately fond of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's one of my favorite books ever. Um, and that book, unlike the Ways of Valerian, Bram Stoker's Dracula, I've taught dozens of times. I used to teach that in my English 101 class um, uh, back in the day. So it's been a, it's been a, it's been a staple of mine in the classroom for a really long time. Just love that book, and. Um, uh, and I'm really interested in various ad- in various van- vampire adaptations uh, of that and the different the different film versions. So we I might I might uh, I might indulge in actually a couple film versions of Dracula uh, if we if we go there. Um, so anyhow, those are our choices. So you know there's not there's definitely no wrong answers here, uh, and I look forward as always. Uh, uh, with eager anticipation to what you guys have for me here as we move forward. So, okay, that's all the news. And now, to finish up uh, uh, the ending of the book with uh, far more precipitousness than you have any reason to expect. So, okay, I wanted to come back briefly to the endings, and now you're like, oh, see, look, he's going backwards, in fact. This is not good. I just want to do a little summary to make sure that we're on the same page. We remember the three endings, the Barber's ending, Morgenstern's ending, and and Goldman's ending, and I would give a very brief 
summary of sort of where each one of the three puts us at the end. The barber, quite contrary to the character of the man, as we are uh, as we are given him in snatches uh, by Goldman, the narrator, um, leaves us with what I can only describe as a as a fatuous fairy tale ending by cutting off the story here and tacking on. They lived happily ever after. He leaves us not only with the fairy tale happy ending intact. To say that he leaves it with a happy ending intact does insufficient justice to where exactly we are left here. It puts the final words, if you don't count the words which the barber in fact added, and they lived happily ever after. Um, the we're ending the story with this sort of brainless uh, declaration that if they promise each other, they will outlive each other. That neither one of them will ever die. It's like maximally, um, uh, maximally uh, unrealistic, right? Maximally untied uh, to any sort of actual concerns of how the world actually works. Um, so that, that that that's that's the one ending that we get. That's the barber's ending we get. Now Morgenstern's ending, um, you may remember, is actively undermined. Right as soon as we get that sort of exaggerated, fatuous fairy tale ending, then all of a sudden we get, um, you know, Humperdinck closing in on them, and then we get the wound reopening, and Wesley relapsing, and Fezzik taking a wrong turn, and uh, and uh, and then the crescendoing sound of pursuit, and the ellipsis, and that's the ending. So we get the two elements that I would emphasize here, both first the undermining of the happy ending, not actively stating that there's an unhappy ending, um, but very openly inviting us to imagine an unhappy ending, and then a needless cliffhanger. And I would emphasize needless, given the context from the frame narration, that this is a historical, this is a matter of historical record, right? So it's not like the ending of this story is unknown. It is, it is, it makes, it draws attention to Morgenstern's choice to leave it as uh, as 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 a hanging story, as, as as a cliffhanger. So he he leaves us hanging, and he undermines it on the way up to that. And you know we we have the Goldman's speculation, you know the the Goldman narrator's speculation about his desire to satirize tradition. There's no question that Morgenstern's version of his national epic, um, uh, with uh, the great uh, how he handles the great heroes Wesley and Buttercup, I think. I, I have to view them as very unflattering that he does make a very unheroic version of this. So inasmuch as we are supposed to understand that the story of Wesley and uh, Buttercup is, you know, a central national epic, and these are great heroes uh, in the history of Florin, Morgenstern appears to be undermining them. I mean, you know, Morgenstern uh, seems to invite uh, criticism, if not active mockery, uh, of those heroes. Um... Then we have Goldman's ending, the, you know, the one that he tacks on afterwards. And in his ending, on the one hand, he does two different things. Well, on the one hand, he restores the satisfying ending. That is, he does tell us, in fact, this story that we're reading, this plot that we have been following, does wrap up uh, in a satisfying way. Or they do escape. They do get to the ship, and everything is okay. So on the one hand, he, re- he, he returns to us that sense of satisfaction in the happy ending of the story, which the barber obviously was keen to leave his son with uh, in the first ending of, of the story. But at the same time, he also undermines the big picture, right? That is to say, he doesn't just want to leave, the, he, he refuses to say they lived happily ever after, right? They didn't live happily ever after. 
their 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 eventual happiness was event was was undermined right nobody actually ends happy because that's not how things really are in the real world right goldman's the narrator the, goldman the narrator's ending here is an ending that wants to have it both ways to give a happy satisfying ending to to our fairy tale story and yet to insist that in the big picture that's not how things really work right um his emphasis of course life is not fair um and we're going to revert to that and insist on that at the very end, even ha- after having granted us or having speculated. Remember, he's not even 100% sure that that's how it happens. He's, he's, this, he admits he's just making it up. Um, f- um, but for me, I say, yes, it was, he says. Right. Anyway, um, uh, real life, of course, is real life is not fair. Um, now, I have to make a note here on the last sentence. And... Bear with me, because it might sound uh, mean-spirited at first. What I have to say about that last sentence is that it's utter nonsense. Um, in fact, it make in my mind, it like makes nonsense of the entire ending of this. Um, life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death, that's all. Now, that's not true. Right? Define fairness. Fairness means treating everybody the same. There's nothing in the world more fair than death. Life isn't more isn't more fair than death. Death is the fairest thing of all. Death treats everybody equally, right? That's now, I know. Probably you're sitting there thinking, well, that's pretty pedantic, right? Here I'm going all Columbia uh, 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 scholar again, right? Um, that might seem like a really kind of nitpicky, annoying sort of thing to say about the ending. That, that I'm kind of playing on his word or insisting on a literal definition of his word uh, there at the end, which might seem unfair. Give me a chance. I don't think I am being unfair there. Um, I find that last sentence really disappointing um and i find that it rings really hollow so let me come let me loop back around to why i think that is and here is where i want to jump ahead to the slides that we didn't get to talk about in detail though i read them so that we could be thinking about them in preparation for the beginning of class tonight okay uh, this passage, this is his gnawing discontent. This is when he, this is after the fake-out scene, uh, when uh, we get the dream of Buttercup uh, coming back as queen and having been made, and, and he, he spends the night thinking that that really happened uh, and trying to invent convoluted ways in which it could turn out not to be the case. Um, what I would emphasize here, what I take from this, is Goldman the narrator t- admitting to us his desire, expressing his desire at least his childhood desire for a happy ending, right? He has what I would call, using Tolkien's terms, the impulse for you catastrophe. We can see that's exactly what he's inventing all night, right? Uh, the, you know, so we're, we're imagining young Goldman in his bed at, that night after uh, hearing that Buttercup and Humperdinck got married. He is trying to imagine some you catastrophe, right? Some, some improbable... Uh, 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 scenario which would make everything come right, right? He has that desire. He confesses that that desire is within him, but notice he insists that that desire is in some sense a shallow desire. He, 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 you know, in the end, like, but I wasn't happy, right? Oh, my ears were happy, I guess. My story sense was happy, 
my heart too, but in my, I suppose you have to call it soul, there was that damn discontent shaking its dark head. Okay, so he says, this, th- this thing he calls his story sense, his sense of how the story should go, which appeals to his heart and his ears in some sense, but it doesn't go deep. It doesn't go all the way to the soul. There's this divi- he confesses this division within himself. On the one hand, this desire for eucatastrophe, for the happy ending, that satisfaction on one level that he finds, but a, he confesses what he uh, describes as a deeper level, which is not satisfied with that. In other words, he's, you know, he uses the expression, um, you know, trying to figure out a way to reconcile the marriage thing, and then he says, but he couldn't make it jibe, right? Um, in the end, he can't make, even his, his, he, he desires a eucatastrophe, he desires a happy ending, but he admits that deep down he can't make the happy ending jibe with, what, life, real life, his actual exp- his experience of the world. Um, that, I think, is what we're sort of, he's sort of pointing at uh, when he's talking about uh, when he's talking about this sort of feeling uh, in his uh, in his soul. So this brings us to the what I think is really the central passage. I think pretty clearly the central passage where the narrator most explicitly says what his uh, um, you know what his what his what his reading of the book is what he believes the center of the book is, and that's that life isn't fair. Right, and he describes his happiness. Right, um, that sense of joy, almost the desire to dance. Right, that he experiences when his author neighbor tells him life isn't fair. Right, we tell our children it is, but it's a terrible thing to do. It's not only a lie; it's a cruel lie. Life isn't fair. It never has been, and it's never going to be. And he's just overcome by the sense of epiphany when he's told by this adult whom he respects and trusts that life isn't fair. Um, you can't count on happy endings, right? Things won't turn out that way. That's not how the world works. Um, and we see that this is one of the impulses in his ending. This, this, this desire to convey this marvelous truth... I shouldn't have said that. Indulging in a little satire there. Um... I guess I don't find this insight enormously profound. Um, Of course the world isn't fair. Um, It doesn't seem to me that either people who appreciate or people who write you catastrophic fairy tales are under any illusions that the world is actually fair. Um, But I'm willing to accept, based on what Goldman has set up for us, that the narrator is not very quick on the uptake. So, that's okay. I, I like doofus narrators. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm a Chaucer fan. I'm a huge fan of doofus narrators, so I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. Um, but anyway, okay. So, the, again, the way he describes it, it sounds like relief, right? That this is, that he's now recognizing, he's explicitly confronting this truth that he had been fighting, or this truth which was at odds against that story sense, right? Against that story sense which pleased his heart, Right, that desire for eucatastrophe for the happy ending. Um, and again, this I think we can see. We go back to the ending, and you see you see both of those impulses. Right, you see his impulse for his desire for eucatastrophe, and also his larger framework of this desire to recognize, this desire to insist that life isn't fair. Right, that that happy endings don't really happen. Um, <clears throat> 
if that's all we had, that'd be interesting. I am very interested in the last passage uh, that I gave, which is his reaction to Wesley's death. Um, and he is... Now, remember, this is after he's talking about the life isn't fair thing, right? This is after he's, he's already said that. Um, and it's interesting to me that he doesn't take this moment to point to... To say, I told you so, right? Remember, he he had a paragraph earlier on in the you know in the connected with the previous passage, um, where he's um, connected to the previous passage where he is uh, talking about life isn't fair and and how how liberating it was to recognize that life isn't fair. That's when he has that paragraph directed to kids, right? He says, "Adults, stop reading," right? And, and he he sort of spills the beans to the kids reading that life isn't fair. Um, uh, you know, so he says about this story, right? He says people are going to die, right? It's going to be, and it's it's not going to be the right people, and it's going to be awful, and you know, there's you're going to suffer, right? But that's the way life is, and and stick to it because it will it will you know, a, a, a Morgan Stern will help you throughout life, right? If you if you if it can help you recognize the fact that life isn't fair, that's again that's what that's why he says that's what this book says, right? It's the meaning of it. Um, the central meaning of it. Um, but when we actually get to the moment that he's forewarning us about, that is Wesley's death in particular, he doesn't give us an I told you so, right? The narrator doesn't break in with an aside that says, see, kids, I told you, right? See, Wesley dies. I don't want to uh, spill the beans totally earlier on, but I, I warned you, right? Just remember, this just goes to show life isn't fair. Things don't work out like you want them to, right? He could say that. He doesn't say that here. Instead, he gives us... Um, I actually think... I would call this... This is for me, anyway, in my opinion, the most emotionally stirring moment in the entire frame. That is, of all the things the Goldman narrator says in his own description of his reading experience, in his own narration of his own personal background and the anecdotes he tells us, this is the this is the moment that I find absolutely most moving. Um, and it's his description, his sort of unveiled description, uncommented upon, um, you know, again, no messages to the modern kids reading, his uncommented on um, description of his emotional experience of the death of Wesley, and he describes the bitterness of his weeping that night, um, and just describes the describes it in terms of a real like experiencing a real tragedy himself, right? A real sense of um, a, a real grief that he encounter that he experiences. He's really lost something, and then when he when his father comes back to read again, he is controlled, right? Shoot, I told him, eyes dry, no catching throat, nothing. Fire when ready. Within a go, let's hear the murder. I said. I knew I wasn't about to bawl again. Like buttercups, my heart was now a secret garden, and the walls were very high. I think the most powerful sentence Goldman narrator wrote. Um, that Im- that metaphor is very striking. Um, his heart was now a secret garden, and the walls were very high. His comparing himself to Buttercup is interesting, in the context of all the things that we've seen about Buttercup, especially in this point of the story. Um... Uh, so we go back to that division in him, right? 
Um, I was already saying, in his ending, we can see that double impulse, right? That impulse towards eucatastrophe, that desire for eucatastrophe and the satisfying ending, satisfying his story sense, and on the other hand, that recognition that um, that life isn't fair, right? And that he wanted to do both, and he does both, and he sort of pushes in those two different directions, and doesn't actually let us fully settle down into either one of them. Do you see what I mean by that? That I mean, had he just been pushing the wife isn't fair thing, why not stick with Morgenstern's ending? What's wrong with that, right? Morgenstern's is the most uncompromisingly negative ending. Right? Again, it's not that he actually ends it in tragedy. His hands are tied, right? Because it's history, after all. He can actually change the events. But he um, he 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 makes it as paints it as bad as he can, right? Leaves us in as negative a frame of mind about the story um, and its probability of happy ending and resolution um, as he possibly can. But Goldman doesn't do that, right? He compromises it. He does both things. He turns about, rejects, essentially rejects Morgan Stern's ending um, and gives us a happy ending while also reminding us that life isn't fair. This image of the secret garden with the very high walls um, suggests to me um, uh, suggests to me a more fundamental division in Goldman the narrator at the end. That is, it's not just that he wants both things, um, but that there is a barrier between those two things. Right? It's he has not married. Um, he's uh, not much, I guess, for sort of the marriage of things in general, but he, um, that is in Goldman the narrator and his, the experience that he gives to us, he doesn't marry those two things. That is, his desire for eucatastrophe and his um, insistence, his recognition, his epiphany about life not being fair. We see this wall between them. It's like there is a part of him um, that is still being caged, still being contained, it's still being walled up. Um, and we can see it kind of coming out, the desire for a happy ending, right? We can see it, if we go backwards, we can see it in his uh, narration, of in his autobiographical stuff, right? In the prologue, or the introduction, rather. Um, you know, like in his desire to get the Princess Bride to his son for his son's 10th birthday, right? We can see in it the desire for eucatastrophe. He wants a happy ending, right? He won't take no for an answer. He goes to all of these absurd lengths to make sure that his son has this has the book. The desire for eucatastrophe is there. He, he wants this to come out. He wants the story to be resolved in this certain way that appeals to his story sense, right? His son, despite all odds, receiving this you know, precious and meaningful book on his 10th birthday, and that he's going to come home and ask his son about it, and his son is going to be like, Dad, I love the book. This changed my life. Let's talk about it, right? That's what, that's that's the happily ever after that he has in mind, but of course it doesn't happen, right? So again, we see this, and his own discomfort with what's happening, I think it's even one of the things that you can kind of hear, or anyway, I should say, it's one way for us to read the kind of pattern of self-talk that we hear in the in the narrator, the number of times he keeps referring back to his fat son and his loveless marriage with his wife and everything, we, this this bothers him. He he doesn't sit happily in either camp. That is, either 
he will not just reject his desire for happily ever after, um, but at the same time, he won't back down from the fact that it's not happily ever after. And those two things never really do seem to be fully recognized, f- fully reconciled, um, in the in the narrator's voice. And this is why I don't think I'm being merely pedantic in picking at his last sentence. Um, that I think just kind of going back there for a second. Um, I think it's... I think that this... The narrator's conclusion, the narrator's ending, ends with a a, a thud. Um, it's just fairer than death, that's all. Which is not very convincing, and it's not... Um, uh, I mean, frankly, I think that if he had dropped the last two sentences and just ended it with, I really do think that love is the best thing in the world, except for cough drops. Even that, I think, is a better ending. Um, the last sentence feels... It feels, you know, divided, lukewarm, and confused, right? Because I, and I think the narrator is divided, lukewarm, and confused. And that is where we're left at the end of the book. Um, my my conclusions... Oh, sorry, that's kind of my conclusions about where the narrator leaves us. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Tom Hillman says, it's a catastrophic. It's not catastrophic. It doesn't have a disastrous ending. It doesn't have a you-catastrophic ending in Tolkien. It's just a catastrophic, right? It's just, yeah, it doesn't have a sort of finale. It just kind of... Well, it doesn't just peter out, but it, it just sort of ends with a, you know, like he doesn't really know where he is or exactly what he wants at the end, it seems to me. Um, I will end my comments on the book with the one final uh, sort of confession. If I had to say at the end the one thing I find most disappointing about this book, or let me say this in a different and positive way, if I had to say one thing that I wish were different about this book that would make me admire it much, much more, and would make it much easier for me to admire it all the way through, would be if I could wish that Goldman had been a little more thorough in the relationship between his frame narrative and the Morgan Stern text. It kind of bothers me that Morgan Stern and Goldman, the Goldman narrator, sound so similar. Um, very similar. And I would have been much happier had there been a much more appreciable difference in style. This sort of anachronistic style and references in Morgenstern are funny. I I mean, they're funny. Um, But I would have enjoyed the whole thing much, much more had there been more of a divide. Had the Morgenstern text, for instance, been executed in like a deliberately archaic style, um, so as to create much more convincingly than it was the illusion that this is an old, uh, an old sort of, you know, dusty and distinguished author that we're reading, and then here's the modern narrator giving us his take. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, I, um, uh, I don't think, I don't find it really convincing. And so I have to be, 
I find it a great strain upon my suspension of disbelief to enter into the fundamental fiction that the frame is asking me uh, to enter into. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, um, yeah, uh, Nancy Fosberg sort of would, would go a step further in saying that she, she thinks that perhaps... She says, there are moments in which I think that the frame Goldman is perpetrating the same hoax that the real Goldman is, or that, like, that's the real joke of it. That the frame, the narrator Goldman is, uh, is actually faking Morgan. Like, that he's trying to pass off on us Morgan Stern when, when he's explicitly making him up. So we're not supposed to be fictionally imagining that Morgan Stern really existed, um, that it's supposed to be a kind of an inside joke, and it's and the Goldman narrator is actually writing it all the way along. Um, I mean, I kind of like that reading, Nancy, but it's hard. I don't know. Um, I guess I'm not fully convinced by it, but it, it means it's an interesting idea. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Interesting. Thomas Johnson makes a, a specific observation supporting my point about the similarity in tone between the two of them. How uh, um, the Goldman narrator uses the phrase, if you like that sort of thing, uh, in his reference to the busty blonde starlet at the pool in the prologue, and Morgenstern uses the exact same phrase, if you like that sort of thing, speaking of Inigo's reaction to Count Rugen's death. Um yeah, Thomas, that, that that is the kind of thing. Um, I mean, I, Thomas, I believe that they're deliberate, but I, I, um, yeah. Well, okay, uh, Thomas Johnson says I think the similarities between the narrator Goldman and Gold- Morgan Stern's voice are deliberate. Narrator Goldman comes back to the Princess Bride as an adult, expecting an escape from the real world, only to find that much of the world he left of its sardonic tone was in the book all along. I mean, I think it's. I think that kind of works. I mean, I'm not prepared to say the whole thing is just a failure. I can't enter into it at all because of this. Like, I, I mean, I can, I can get that. Like, I, I can see the the sort of similarity of satire um, between the Goldman narrator frame and the Morgan Stern frame. Um, it's that. I mean, that that seems to me to work. It seems to me to fit. I, uh, I I'm, I'm okay with that. I just. I don't... I think that that could be done... I think that if a similar point were made in a different way, that is, to to go f- a step further in the fiction, um, a step further in developing the fictional frame that this is another, a different author, not himself, that he's commenting on, um, I think that you could establish the same point, but in a way which I think would be far more effective. Um, but, um, anyway... Um, Let's, uh... Let's talk about the movie. Um... Okay. So, here's what I want to do. I want to... break up our discussion. We're going to talk about the movie tonight, for the rest of tonight, and tomorrow. Tomorrow. 
I always I usually do that. You know, when I'm doing class, like in the world of the class, the next class is tomorrow, and last week's class was yesterday. Um, uh, in the next class, we're going to talk. There are two things that I want to, two big overarching things that I want to make sure we do more justice to. So I'm going to squeeze them in today, and those are the larger fairy tale story of Wesley and Buttercup. I want to be looking at that from beginning to end. How does the film handle the fairy tale element? And then similarly, the frame. How does the what does the uh, the adaptation of the frame in the film establish? What kind of cues do we get from this frame? Um, of course, along the way, we're going to be commenting. I've been, you, as you know, I've been attempting to resist doing comparisons, um, you know, doing uh, uh, similarities and differences between the film and the book all the way through. Um, it's now open se- uh, open season on uh, book similarities and differences. If there's something that we're talking about, um, you know, sort of a topic we're discovering, or sort of a, 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 a particular little idea or motif um, that we're discussing in the film clips that I want to look at today. Um, that is connected to another scene. Feel free to go ahead and make a connection to other scenes. Um, I may uh, I may come back to it if we're going to look at that. Um, I may uh, um, I may do uh, um, uh, the I, I, we we I, we may just talk about it. So okay. Um, all right. Um, Philip Lord says, this may be the only time I prefer the movie to the book. I have been trying to think if there's any other example that, in my own experience, of a movie that I like as much more than the book as I do this one. Because I do. I like the movie far more than I like the book. I respect the, I've come to respect the book much more than I did before we started class. I absolutely have. I still think the movie is head and shoulders better. Um... And I've been trying to think of examples, and I've been really coming up... Uh, um, interesting, both uh, Sarah Powell and Erica Henson just mentioned Jurassic Park um, as uh, as an example. Uh, I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure. Um, Kate Neville says Gone with the Wind. Interesting. I haven't read that one either. Um, the only two that I can think of... Um, uh, uh, Thomas Johnson, yeah, The Godfather. I, I like The Godfather. I, I still wouldn't rank The Godfather, uh, the book, that is. Um, I still wouldn't rank The Godfather up with The Princess Bride. I do think, if you take Godfather 1 and 2 together, taking Godfather 1 alone, um, I think the book has so much more in it. But most of the more in it that isn't in the film, they put in the second film. So, namely, the uh, sort of the story of the rise of Vito Corleone. But... Um, uh, but uh, but so if 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 we accept sort of Godfather one and two together um, as uh, the adaptation of Godfather two or Godfather the book, I'm willing to do that. But I um, um, I, I, I I but I still don't think the difference is as great because I think uh, the Godfather is uh, is is sort of a, I, I, I respect it a little bit more. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, Erica, I cannot agree with uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. No, the book is like a hundred times better than the movie. No way. Absolutely no way. Um, well, Carolyn, I haven't thought of that one, but Jaws, you're right. Jaws, I'd give Jaws too, I think. Um, the, yeah, yeah, Jaws, I would, Jaws, I would, I would, I would, uh, I would accept Jaws too. But anyway, um, this instance I certainly find remarkable. Um, but uh, anyhow, let's let's actually let's actually look at it tonight. 
I want to focus on Inigo and Fezzik. I want to look at the Inigo and Fezzik story. Uh, so next time we're going to look at the frame and we're going to look at Wesley and, and, and Buttercup. I'm not going to focus on them too much tonight. Um, but I do want to focus on Inigo and Fezzik. And in addition to looking at the story of Inigo and Fezzik, um, I definitely want to... Um, uh, I definitely want to focus on some of the trends in how the f- the book has been adapted to the film. That is... Um, obviously, it's compressed. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's compressed. It's a short film. Um, you know, this was done in the 80s when films were supposed to be like an hour and a half long. Um, and it is an hour and a half long. So, in looking at the Inigo and Fezzik story over the course of the book, I want there, there are a few things that I want to be looking at. I want to look at, A, um, how the, this, just compare and contrast how the story is told. In particular, I want to pay attention to any of the real departures. There aren't that many. I mean, it's pretty faithful to the book, but there are some significant departures. That is, things that are, that are, that are done significantly differently in the film. Um, not just bits that are cut, right? But, but an, a real, what I would call a substantive change. Um, so I definitely want to look at those. I want to look at the, the manner in which things are compressed and the effect of the compression. What you know, can we sort of identify some of the things that are being lost in some of these scenes that are being compressed? I'm also interested to see lines that are kept straight from the book, right? And in particular, I find interesting lines that are kept from the book but transposed to a different place or a different character. And um, and I also want to look at at... I don't know how to say this, the role of comedy, how comedy works in the film, um, with a special eye to the question we were asking throughout our reading of the book, what are we being invited to laugh at? At whom are we laughing with the characters or at them, and how does that work? Okay. Um, yeah, Philip Lord, the life is pain line, I think is, is, is the most dramatically relocated line. Um, in the film. I can't think of any more dramatic examples than that one. Uh, but we'll talk about that one next time, because that's a that's a Wesley line in the film, of course. Alright. So, first clip. And tell me if the audio is okay. You should be able um, you should be able to, to, to hear this. We are but poor lost circus performers. Is there a village nearby... There is nothing nearby, not for miles. Then there will be no one to hear you scream. Ah! What is that you're ripping? It's fabric from the uniform of an army officer of Gilder. Who's Gilder? The country across the sea, the sworn enemy of Florin. Go! Once the horse reaches the castle, the fabric will make the prince suspect the Gilderians have abducted his love. When he finds their body dead on the Gilder frontier, his suspicions will be totally confirmed. You never say anything about killing anyone. I've hired you to help me start a war. It's a prestigious line of work with a long and glorious tradition. I just don't think it's right killing an innocent girl. Am I going mad? Or did the word think escape your lips? You are not hired for your brains, you hippopotamic landmass. I agree with Fezzik. Oh, the sot has spoken. What happens to her is not truly your concern. I will kill her. And remember this. Never forget this. When I found you, you were so slobbering drunk, you couldn't buy brandy. And you, friendless, 
brainless, helpless, hopeless. Do you want me to send you back to where you were? Unemployed in Greenland? Vicini, he can fuss. Fuss, fuss. Think he like to scream at us? Probably he means no harm. He's very, very short on charm. You have a great gift for Ryan. Yes, yes. Some of the time. Enough of that! Percy, are there rocks ahead? If they are, You'll be dead. No more rhymes now, I mean it. Anybody want to pin it? Yeah! Okay, first of all, uh, if the transmission uh, over in the live net mode isn't coming across really clear, uh, it's, this is, uh, first of all, if you watch the recorded version, it should be much clearer uh, on the uh, on the recording that we'll post later on. Um, but of course, you're meant to do your homework, so hopefully you've already watched the movie, and uh, this is just to sort of serve to refresh your memory of the particular lines uh, that we're going to be talking about. Um, uh, yeah, so the actor lisps... Yeah, but still, they chose that, right? I mean, they cast him as Vicini, knowing that he wisped, so obviously that must be a feature that they want. Um, I agree, uh, let's see, that he's, uh, Brian Yoder was saying Vicini seems a bit doofy to be a villain mastermind. I agree, he's never a very convincing mastermind, right? Um, when he starts talking, when we get to the point where he's bragging about how intelligent he is, um, we are much more, I think, in the film than in the book, prepared to disbelieve him, right? He doesn't, he seems, uh, like more of a doofus. I agree, Brian. Um, but I, it does seem to, the, even the lisp, I think, kind of undermines him a bit. Um, it's a little bit harder to take him completely seriously as, you know, as you say, Brian, the evil mastermind. Um, Michael says, we laugh at film Vizzini rather than fear him. Um, Yes, yes. Um, Carita points out that he it's interesting that he's not uh, beautiful like he is in the book. Yeah, he's also not acrobatic either. You'll remember, of course, that it's Vicini who does the, like, Vulcan grip on her neck to make her pass out uh, when they capture her. But, of course, that couldn't have been done in the film, right? Because the actor who plays Vicini is far too short uh, and far too little athletic to execute that maneuver on a woman on horseback, right? So instead, they make Andre the Giant reach out at slightly below his own head level and uh, and uh, and pull her down off his horse. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's... that's uh, so, so one change we can see is is them undermining Vicini. But as a couple of you are pointing out, to me the most interesting thing um, is uh, is yeah. Uh, John uh, Kingdon says um, uh, that the actor is convincing in portraying how Vicini contro- controls his much more deadly companions through sheer force of personality. Yes, I agree. Um, he is far more abusive. The team of Vicini and Fezic and Inigo in the film is a much more dysfunctional unit, right? That is dysfunctional as far as their relationship with Vizzini is concerned. This looks like an abusive... Fa- he, 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 he acts like an abusive father um, more than, uh, than as uh, an employer. They show real loyalty to Vizzini uh, in the book. There seems to be a real bond 
there. Fezzik's desire to find Vizzini and his 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 grief and and confusion at finding Vizzini dead is um uh is quite genuine it seems. Um uh and yes, Thomas the abuse does act as a good opportunity for exposition, but I don't accept that as a reason because you can do that in other ways, right? It didn't have to be through abuse. It could have been in any in, in any number of other ways, but they chose abuse, right? So um we see the division between Vizzini on the one hand and Inigo and Fezzik on the other hand. We are predisposed not necessarily to see them as heroes. Um, you know, we talked about in the book about how sort of unexpected and surprising it is when all of a sudden we're getting the life story of these two apparently bit characters. We have no re- other reason at that moment in the book to see them as anything other than bit characters, mere obstacles that the protagonist has to overcome. Um, it's not necessarily been given away yet that the two of them are really major characters, but our sympathy seems to be uh, rallied in their favor, that is Inigo and Fezzik's favor, very strongly through the abusiveness of Vizzini here at the beginning. Um, and uh, um, yeah, Brian Mahoney says that uh, movie Vizzini seems to have an inferiority complex. Yeah, and I, that's one of the things that's really effective in casting him as being so short. Right. I mean, of course, the, that that initial scene that uh, this clip started on, you know, this is the sort of the classic uh, <laughs> uh, tableau, right, of the three of them. Uh, and you see, I mean, like he barely comes, the top of his head is barely up to Andre the Giant's sternum. <laughs> I mean, he's really short. And of course, Andre the Giant is truly enormous. Um and Sarah Lagarde, absolutely. Fezzik and Inigo's bromance is apparent from the beginning. They are adorable. They are adorable. Right? And we see them rallying together um, like siblings in an abusive foster home or something, right? Um, it's, it's, it's sort of extra touching. Um, but um, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, Tom, he does seem like a, a, he has a sort of a stereotypical Napoleon complex, which again, Tom in my mind, I think, sets us up to, 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 to be laughing at him all the way, right? That is, we never... I don't ever really believe that he's that formidable. When we, whereas, again, book Vizzini, we, we, we have more reason to believe that he is to be feared, um, whereas we never really get there, I don't think, with, uh, with film uh, Vizzini. So, okay. Uh, next one. Climbing the rope. And he's getting on us. Inconceivable. Faster! I thought I was going faster. You were supposed to be this colossus. You were this great legendary thing, and yet he gains. Well, I'm carrying three people, and he got on himself. I do not accept excuses. I'm just going to have to find myself a new giant, that's all. Don't say that, Vincini, please. Did I make it clear that your job is at stake? How, like, like a little puppy dog, how little kid Fezzik sounds, right? Don't say that, please, right? As, as you know, he's sort of, you know, begging to his, uh, to his abuser. Even the way in which that, you know, given the harness that they're in and stuff, the way that this is staged... Right, it's the only time in the uh, one of the only times in the one of the only two times in the in the movie in which they're almost eye to eye, 
right? Um, because he's being held up on a harness right in front of his face. So as as Fezzik is hauling all four of them up the cliffs of insanity with his arms alone, um, Vizzini is right in his face, right? And uh, and 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 criticizing him, and it's 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 being horrible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Arthur Harrow makes a really interesting point, Arthur, and you're touching on a theme that I want to be getting to. Um, Arthur Harrow says, in what adventure movie would someone say your job is at stake? Um, uh, it gives this it gives this charm. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It does. That is one of a few breaks in the frame. I mean, it's not exactly a break in the frame. I mean, he's... Um, remember, he used the word unemployed earlier on on the boat, right? So that kind of language... Um, notice the emphasis there is that he makes it explicitly clear that they're not family, right? They're not bonded together. Uh, Vizzini is explicitly, several times over, Fezzik's employer, not his father figure, right? Um, and he doesn't care about him uh, only as much as he performs. Um, I'll just have to find a new giant uh, is a funny line, Carita. Um, though, again, kind of pathetic, given Fezzik's... Um, uh, 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 pitiful desire to please. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, this is a, a significant change. The change in dynamics with Vizzini are a very significant change, and I think one of the inevitable effects of this is, again, to... We don't know sort of how being attached to Fezzik and Inigo is going to pay off, in a sense, right? Um, But I would say that moment when we flash back into Inigo's past, that first indication that these are going to be major characters in the book and not just a bit part, I think that in the book that's sort of genuinely surprising. I don't think we have much reason to suspect they're going to be major characters. Here, um, in the film, I think we do. Um, at this point in the film, you know, we're, we're still less than a third of the way through the film. Um, it's pretty clear that we, as the audience, are being invited to really care about Inigo, about Inigo and Fezzik. Um, so I think that the, the, the placing of Inigo and Fezzik at closer to the center of the whole story is something that happens earlier on that is that is sort of worked into the story um, much more much more close to the beginning um, which means we don't have that kind of jarring moment right where they seem to kind of break out of the role that they seem to be in but that seems to me an interesting point in itself the story is more smooth in that way at least this element of the story is more smooth. We don't have... Our attention is not being drawn to the elements of the story as storytelling in the same way. Do you see what I mean by that? Um, That is, I think, we are being invited to immerse ourselves more fully in this story without thinking about the storytelling itself. Um, 
Okay, we'll come back to the frame. I know the frame is going to, you know, our consideration of the frame is going to impact that. But I th- that's one of the little mini-conclusions I would draw about the way that they have sort of begun and kind of framed within the story. I shouldn't use the word framed, probably, but um, the way that they have uh, introduced the story of Inigo and Fezzik. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, Thomas, I absolutely, I was going to say that, but but I forgot to say that, and you're absolutely right. Um, Thomas Johnson says that uh, one of the, um, one of the effects of making Vizzini more abusive is that it makes Fezzik sympathetic without the flashbacks to his past. Of course, seeing the, you know, Fezzik's horrible and tragic past with his parents and everything else that you know that 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 we talked about the effect that that had and the way that our sympathies are rallied behind Fezzik so strongly uh, in the book this is being done far more efficient we don't have time for those kinds of flashbacks right we don't we get some backstory with Inigo we don't get any backstory with Fezzik in the film um and yet notice as Thomas points out in these early scenes we get more emphasis on Fezzik right um it is it is Fezzik even more than Inigo um, who is getting our sympathies uh, rallied uh, behind them. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, uh, Carolyn Morehouse says that uh, uh, Rob Reiner has cleaned out the narrative hurdles in the movie. Carolyn, one thing I want to do here, I, I don't know how to distinguish between... Reiner, the director, and Goldman, the uh, the um, screenwriter. Um, I mean, I mean, I literally don't know how. I, I don't know enough about movie making to even be able to to guess at what elements of the particular depictions are likely to derive from the director and what elements are um, in the script. But. Um, um, but that's okay. I'm not actually bothered about that. Um, that is distinguishing between those two things. Um, but I'm, uh, uh, but I'm, uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, gonna try there. Yeah, I have a copy of the script, uh, Brianna. I think I have a copy of the original script. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, I mean, let me say it's certainly making that kind of distinction is beyond certainly what we're going to have time to do and what I'm especially interested in doing. I'm more interested in looking at, you know, sort of the film as a whole and how it's treating this. Um, but, um, anyway, we, I, I'm not saying it's not an interesting question, but I, uh, um, yeah, Brianna says that directors can edit scripts. So the issue is still somewhat there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I don't, um, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, it's fine, and Ed, Ed, Ed is referring to the uh, the commentaries. I distrust commentaries, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I have a I have a kind of skepticism uh, for the things that people say in commentaries after the fact, but because um, that requires a level of interpretation all a different level of interpretation um it's one of the things that i generally find um i find sometimes people will point to comments that an author made after the fact for instance about a book as if the comments of the author automatically solve 
interpretive problems, and I don't find that an author's comment generally solves interpretive problems, it just raises new ones. That is, uh, it's interesting that the author thinks that, and interesting that the author says that. Um, why? Is the, you know, what is the author doing in their interpretive statements? Again, just to me, it just adds another level of... Uh, it, Arthur Harrow asks, can an author crit fic himself? Absolutely an author can crit fic himself. Absolutely an author can. Um, uh, yes, definitely. <laughs> Carita Alexander thinks that this applies to J.K. Rowling. I didn't say it. Carita Alexander said that she thinks perhaps J.K. Rowling is an example of this kind of thing. I didn't say it. Anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. He didn't fall? Inconceivable! You keep using the horde. I don't think it means what you think it means. My God, he's climbing. Whoever he is, he's obviously seen us with the princess and must therefore die. You carry her. We'll head straight for the Gilder Frontier. Catch up when he's dead. If he falls, fine. If not, the sword. I'm going to do him left-handed. You know what a hurry we're in! Uh, the only way I can be satisfied. If I use my right, over too quickly. Oh, have it your way. You be careful. People in masks cannot be trusted. I'm waiting! <laughs> uh, when I think of Vicini in the film, this is the image in my head of the film Vicini. That particular posture as he says, I'm waiting. Um, that's, that is, that Patrick, that's absolutely my freeze frame of Vicini right there. Um, I, uh, Several things we see here. First, the relationship, again, thinking back this the same thread that we've been following, both the relationship between Fezzik and Inigo and the relationship between Fezzik and Inigo and, uh, and Vicini. It's, um, we notice, as a couple of you were pointing out, uh, Arthur Harrow was pointing out how Inigo stands up to Vicini. Um, we see, we can see here a distinction being made between Fezzik and Vicini. It's, or between Fezzik and Inigo. Inigo is clearly like the older sibling, right? The two of them are, 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 are you know, definitely doing their, their bromance thing, but Inigo is the, is the, is the, is the older sibling, right? Um, he's the one who's willing to stand up to the abuser, not to defy him, not to leave him aside, right? Um, but, uh, um, but they, um, but he, but, but he nevertheless resists him and resists him successfully, Right, both in his calling him into question, and he's the one who calls him out. Right, I do not think him is what you think him is. You keep using that word, right? Just that that very quiet. You keep using that word. Um, you know, it's questioning him like it, you don't really understand what's going on here, you Mister Incredibly Brainy uh, Sicilian guy. Um, so that's. You know that, that that that's one. But then, of course, in his relationship with uh, Fezzik there at the end, I just love this exchange. And uh, Inigo's, you know, his Fezzik's very touching concern: people in masks cannot be trusted. Right? Be careful. His, you know, his his concern for Inigo. People in masks cannot be trusted. 
and that little nod. Don't worry, Big Brother's got this, right? It's 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 just a uh, it's just adorable. But Arthur, you're right. He does stand up to Vizzini in a respectful way. He doesn't def- he doesn't. I wouldn't use the word defy because he doesn't defy him, right? But he does resist him. Um, so okay, so we can see sort of a complication of the the sort of warped, abusive family dynamics going on here among these three. Um, notice how much. You know, when asking um, asking the question, whom are we laughing at, right? Whom or what are we laughing at? Um, I, you know, here, I think it's pretty clear. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the horn. Inigo and Fezzik are, compl- not only are they themselves completely serious, but we don't laugh at them in these scenes. I mean, maybe a little bit at... I don't think I miss what you think I miss. Just a little bit. That's kind of funny. Um, uh, that is, he's, uh, his, his poor grammar, his poor syntax there, um, you know, maybe shows that uh, uh, Inigo is absolutely the sharpest tool in the shed, and so we're invited in a tiny little way to laugh at him. But it's very, compared to Vizzini, who is definitely looking like the butt of the joke here, um, Fezzik in particular, and even Inigo, are sounding almost like straight men in comparison. And again, especially given the fact that our sympathies are going out to them because of the abusive relationship that they have with Vizzini, um, that, uh, you know, so we have the one character who's being sort of isolated uh, for mockery, but not Inigo or Fezzik, I would say. Um... Now, Inigo and Wesley. Hello there! Slow going? Look, I don't mean to be rude, but this is not as easy as it looks, so I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't distract me. Sorry. Thank you. I don't know, suppose you've got to spit things up. If you're in such a hurry, you could lower a rope or a tree branch or find something useful to do. I could do that. I've got some rope up here, but I do not think it would accept my help, since I am only waiting around to kill you. That does put a damper on our relationship. But I promise I will not kill you until you reach the top. That's very comforting, but I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. I hit with. I could give you my word as a Spaniard. No good. I've known too many Spaniards. Not there any way you trust me? Nothing comes to mind. I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya. You will reach the top alive. Throw me the rope. What do you think? What do you make of this? Notice, this scene is condensed, right? Significantly condensed from the book version of this scene. But this clip that we were just looking at has a much higher percentage of lines straight out of the book than any of the scenes we've been looking at so far, right? Um, All of the funniest lines in this scene 
are word for word from the book, right? That does put a damper on our relationship, right? I do not think you would accept my help, as I am only waiting up here to kill you, right? Um, um, no good, I've known too many Spaniards. I mean, that all of them, as I recall, are directly out of the book. Um, that's interesting, right? And as... What's also interesting to me is that when we start doing lines straight out of the book is the time in which the sort of frame of this story, and by this story I mean specifically the story of Inigo and Fezzik and Vecini, has been really turned. We're being invited to laugh at it. the action of the of this of it. Uh, it's, uh, we were laughing sort of at Vizzini's expense before he was being made to look ridiculous, before. But, uh, but then when this moment when Inigo first calls down the cliff to Wesley, um, and Wesley sort of responds sardonically, you know, this is not as easy as it looks. Um, the paradigm of the of 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 the story of that element of the story anyway, um, the, that is again the this Inigo and Fezzik story has changed changed I think in an important way. We haven't been laughing at them before, but whom are we laughing at? What is the effect of this? Do we laugh at Inigo? Are we laughing at Wesley? What's the effect of this of sort of breaking that particular? Um, breaking that particular frame. Um, what's going... What's the nature of the comedy? What makes it funny? You know, we're sort of back to, you know, that kind of exercise that I talked about earlier on. Um, um, good. Ian, I agree. We laugh at Wesley's wit, yes, and his... Um, the One of the things that's obviously funny is the sort of the contrast between the lightheartedness of the repartee and the seriousness of the situation, right? The laughing at somebody making remarks like that while they're clinging for dear life to the side of a cliff, right? That's, um, uh, that's yet, as Philip Lord says, we laugh at the absurd nature of the situation rather than at a character. Yeah, good, Neil was just saying an almost, almost exactly the same thing. Um, um, Erica Henson says, the audience is meant to like both of these characters. Their conversation establishes a mutual respect and trust. They're both good guys, even though they're about to fight to the death. I agree, Erica, that does seem to me to be the outcome of this scene. Uh, we do like them both, and even the way in which this situation resolves itself, right? Um, Kate Neville says, we delight in the trope of gallantry, which is being both teased and respected. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, uh, the seriousness that it goes to at the end. I mean, uh, Inigo was... His comments were quite funny, right? You know, I've got some rope up here, but I do not think you would accept my help, right? Um, that's, that's as I say, that's, that's, that's quite comical. Um, but... Uh, sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, that's quite comical, but it shifts pretty noticeably... Right. Yeah. Here, right? Hey! Nothing comes to mind. I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya. You will reach the top alive. Throw me the rope. Not funny anymore. 
right? <laughs> in fact, we've moved almost from comical exchange to like we're not quite in Fezzik and Inigo levels of bromance, but but getting there, right? The the sort of the connection, the respect between them. Um, yeah, yeah. Kate, this is the first mention that we get of of his father and the death of his father. Uh, it's the first introduction to Inigo's uh, wider story, Neo. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brianna says that she's pretty sure that she remembers when seeing this as a kid uh, that she was upset that one of these characters would have to die in the next scene when I liked them both so much already uh, from this from this short exchange. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Tom Hillman calls this the, uh, this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship moment. Exactly. Exactly. Um, let's look at the conversation, the, the more, the fuller version of Inigo's backstory. Think, think about the way this pre- was presented in the book. It's obviously been wildly compressed from the very, very long version of Inigo's backstory. Um, what are the elements that they keep in the film? What are the elements, what do you think are the most important elements that they cut? What's the effect of those changes. How does Inigo's story hit us differently now, and in particular the way that we see him interacting with Wesley? Because, of course, it's a very significant change. The the context, it, it had no context, well, sort of, yeah, it did have no context, in the sense that it wasn't part of the story, right? It was, we now interrupt the story to give you a long version of Inigo Montoya's history, right? Um, the way that this is put into exposition, but basically, you know, connects him with Wesley, is, I think, a really major, uh, major change. But let's look at this here. I do not mean to pry. I love that line. But you don't by any chance happen to have six fingers on your right hand? Do you always begin conversations this way? My father was slaughtered by a six-fingered man. Was a great sword maker, my father. The six-fingered man appeared and requested a special sword. My father took the job. He slept a year before he was done. I've never seen its equal. Six-fingered man returned and demanded it. But at one-tenth his promised price. My father refused. Without a word, the six-fingered man slashed him through the heart. I love my father. So naturally, I challenged his murderer to a duel. Listen to the soundtrack. The soundtrack, I think, is really effective in this film. But he gave me this. How old were you? I was 11 years old. When I was strong enough, I dedicate my life to the study of fencing. So the next time we meet, I will not fail. I will go up to the six-fingered man and say, Hello, my name is Geneva Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. You've done nothing but study swordplay. Or pursue it in a study like you. You see, I cannot find it. It's been 20 years now. I started to lose confidence. I just work for Ficina to pay the bills. It's not a lot of money in revenge. Well, I... I certainly hope you find him someday. 
Get ready, ready, ready to start the fight to the death. I certainly hope you, you find a moment. Fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. Thank you. <laughs> um, Kate Neville's pointing out how simply the story is done. No camera tricks, very few changes of perspective. It's just a straight story, right? He's just telling the story. Um, do you notice the differences? In fact, Neil Ottenstein has made one really important factual um, observation. Uh, that is a factual difference between the story of his father's death, as Inigo tells it in the film, and the story of his father's death as it's told in the book. In the book, Count Rugen says the sword's not worth waiting for, right? He rejects, he doesn't just try to rip him off, he rejects the sword, right? Um, in the movie, he's, he just rips him off, right? He just, you know, it, it's a, it's a money issue, right? What do you think of that? What do you think of, of, uh, uh, what do you think of the effect of that change. It certainly changes our view of Count Rugen, right? Um, I would say also it seems to change the well, nature, I'm not sure if that's the right word, tone, perhaps, of Inigo's desire for revenge that is part of part, I'm not saying it's the whole reason, but part of what fuels Inigo's desire for revenge is not only to avenge the death of his father, but in a sense to justify his father, right? That's one of the reasons why he takes the six-fingered sword and is determined to not just kill Count Rugen, but to kill him with the six-fingered sword, right? I'm going to show you, I'm going to justify my father's craftsmanship. You have not only killed my father, but you... But he, before he killed, before he slashed him through the heart, he he um, crushed his father, um, uh, you know, outraged his father by saying that this this work this you know, and we see how what you know the the eccentric and extreme way in which uh, again in the book in which Domingo Montoya's craftsmanship is is emphasized, right? Um, but uh, you know, and for that to be challenged for that to be slandered um, by Count Rugen is almost you know, again, certainly to Domingo would be almost sort of as bad as uh, um, as the actual, you know, murder. But anyway, um, so that I think is an interesting change. It, it removes that element, and it just makes Count Rugen a callous rich man, right, who first tried to rip off and then just murdered out of hand his uh, you know, uh, Inigo's, that is, uh, comparatively low-class father. Um, so it merely becomes an underdog, you know, a story of love and, 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 and vengeance, but also a kind of an underdog story, right? The, the, the element of the story that we get when, um, in the book, young Inigo stands up to the Count, right, and demands that he, um, that he come down off his horse and face him, um, that element of the story is not emphasized so much in the film, but we get that—that that, that still is sort of the context in which we see he's not going to let—he's um, not going to let the man get away with this. He's not going to let the—you the, know—the the nobleman get away with doing this. Um, he's going to call him to account. Um, that does seem to be uh, uh, 
um, that 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 does seem to be part of the, the part of the sort of an element of the story. Um, Sarah Powell says, you know, th- yeah, we see the Inigo in the movie less insulted and more simply grieving his father. Yeah, the 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 you know, I love my father, right? Um, that's the heart of his story, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Yeah, um, Ian. Boywalk says, uh, from a filmmaking perspective, by putting Inigo and Wesley together in the same shot, it shows that they're connected both by space and by narrative. Uh, it's called a two-shot. Yeah, you notice how uh, Inigo crosses over and sits down next to Wesley during, you know, and, and, and that's... And then as several of you are pointing out, um, tactically, it's not a great idea to hand over your sword to the guy you're about to fight to the death. Right, the masked man whom you informed you're planning to kill, um, probably handing him your sword is is not wise. But we can see, Inigo and Wesley are already past all that, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Philip was just pointing to that too. Absolutely. Um, it's uh, it is uh, it's certainly again a mark of the respect that we see between the two of them. And right as Nancy says, just after Fezzik warned him that people in masks are not to be trusted, and here he is handing his sword off to the to, to the man in the mask. Now, Nancy, but of course he's right. Inigo is right to trust him. Right? Uh, he is not proven wrong by this. He does, in fact, he is the big brother. He does in this way uh, know better than uh, than 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 Fezzik. But it's um, it's. Uh, it's kind of adorable. Yeah, Michael Chiskowski is pointing out how these two supposed knaves and scoundrels, uh, you know, sort of the the pirate and the uh, the freelance vengeance-seeking uh, 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 swordsman, uh, you know, mercenary, are um, uh, are both of them showing this sort of high levels of uh, chivalry, um, as Sarah is pointing out. Um, and the lines at the beginning, you know, do you always begin conversations this way? Um but can you notice how Inigo's words turn the comedy aside, right? We're ready to prepare to start laughing with them again, and I do think we're laughing with them, not at them. Um, Wesley's comment is is obviously gentle, right? Again, he's not mocking uh, Inigo. Um, but then when Inigo comes back with, my father was slaughtered by a six-fingered man, it's like, oh. And, you know, he just he doesn't even respond verbally. He just shows his hand, right? And again, I think we can see sort of the respect there. Again, in my mind, the cues that we're receiving as uh, as audience members are, are pretty clear. Uh, we're not going to do the whole duel, but uh, I want to do the second half of the duel, second last portion of the duel, I should say. And my emphasis here is um, the physical comedy. How does the physical comedy, the way in which this duel is being undermined by physical comedy, and what is the effect of that? There's something I want to tell you. Tell me. I'm not left-handed either. Watch the blocking here. <laughs> Casually throws the sword. The hydrogen. Ma- Watch how far away from the sword he is here. But now he's magically right next to it. <laughs> oh, are you? No one of consequence. I must get used to disappointment. Hey. 
through the legs thing. And the music, so perfect. window as an artist like yourself. However, since I can't have you following me either. <clears throat> please understand I hold you in the highest respect. Um I agree that we have, you know, in these scenes a reference to sort of classic Errol Flynn uh, you know, swashbuckling films. Um like Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, of course. Um Yes, yes, we definitely we we definitely get that um you know as uh, as Ar- Ar- as Arthur was saying you sort of mocking but also kind of an homage as well. Um uh, Brianna, yeah, I was no I was I was going to say the same thing. Uh when I was sort of joking about the the you know the, how we can see him land like 5 feet away from the sword and yet uh when we cut back to him he's sort of, you know, in this dignified fashion standing right next to it. Um and uh the way in which with their yeah and Karita again their facial expressions like we're being invited on the one hand to take it seriously yet there's this whole setup of it is like an open recognition of the fact that it's also a joke right the music when his sword flies up in the air and he runs around the corner and catches his sword and the way that the music itself pauses like uh, and okay we, we shall resume I mean it's all of it is conspiring to sort of let us in on the joke that this is not serious. And, wait, and I didn't even get to Brianna's comment. Brianna's comment that when they land, uh, you know, when they swing on the bar and then land, you can you can really obviously see the gymnastics mat with the sand on top of it. I mean, it's obvious that they're not landing on the ground, and they're not they're like barely even trying to conceal that, right? But that's that's fine. You know, that's um, uh, th- th- I don't you know do, does it undermine it? You know, are we? What are we laughing at? Are we laughing at the swordplay? Are we at laughing at the characters? Are we laughing at the story? What is the effect of this? I mean, the physical comedy is funny. Yeah, yeah. Granted, it's funny. I love this, and I always loved this scene. Um, I, I mean, I will, I will confess that when I was, I don't know, uh, you know, twelve, thirteen. Um, when did this movie come out? Was it eighty six, eighty? Somebody tell me the date. When did this film come out? Um, I seem to remember watching it when I was 12 or... 87, right, okay, yeah, 13. Um, uh, So, yeah, when I was 13 and watching this movie for the first time, um, I, 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 I would... Well, no... Not thirteen, fourteen, because it was when it was on video. Um, I would like totally rewind the movie to watch the fencing scene again. I loved the fencing scene, um, but uh, but again, what do we make of the physical comedy? How does the physical comedy interact with the story? And my main question again is like the questions I was asking at the beginning of our discussion of the book: Where are we as viewers? Where does it put us as viewers? Does it distance us from the story? Does it distance us from the characters? Is that question? Are those the same questions? Um, does it do? Could it do one and not the other? Or does it do one and not the other? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and Erica, yes, for some reason there's a gymnastic high bar in the middle of the wilderness. Yeah, that, that's of course also a very convenient bar with obvious hand grips on it, right? It's moss covered except for the place where you're supposed to grab and swing around. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, John uh, Kingdon says, the main difference from the book is that it's very obvious from early in the fight that nobody's going to die. The book keeps the tension on until the end. That's interesting, John. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you're right. Even the line that I was pointing to before they started, you know, when how odd it is to start a duel to the death by telling the person you're fighting against, I hope you find him someday. You know, I hope that you, you are successful down the road in this quest. That doesn't sound like the words of somebody who has any intention of killing the guy in question, right? Um, uh, yeah, Kristen Houck says, for all that we're told this is a fight to the death, it's remarkably lacking intention. Um, even Wesley's question, why are you smiling, right? is a question that could be asked again and again, right? If you guys are fighting to the death, why are you smiling? Um, yeah, Sarah Powell says they're just so nice to each other when they're fighting to the death. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Kate Neville says, I'm reminded of the challenge in performing farces on stage. They only work for the audience if the actors take everything seriously, even the pratfalls. Um, I, I, I do... I mean... I don't think they break the frame exactly. They are, I mean, they're smiling, but I don't think, it's not like they're laughing at what's going on or like they're not being serious about it. But rather, it's, we are being invited, I think, very transparently not to take it that seriously. Again, the, the, the business with the throwings, I mean, it's so obviously over the top, like, look what an awesome epic hero I am, right? I casually, suavely throw my sword, do the gymnastics thing, and miraculously ran, land right next to it, though you can see that I didn't. Um, uh, it's uh, it's a good. Nancy Fosberg points out that you're right. In the earlier part of the duel, the way that they're talking shop is really funny. Um, the fact that that, that all those reference to the two different, to, you know, to the to the to the different kinds of moves, right? Um, I, but it's more Nancy. I agree. It's it's more like shop talk, right? There, uh, the way they're kind of bantering back and forth. Um, uh, I thought it fitting considering the rocky terrain, right? Um, it's uh, it's 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 very. Um, yeah, Philip Lord says that was all Inigo's inner voice in the book. And again, getting back to. Um, uh, getting back to John's point, it's part of the tension, right? Uh, we're getting Inigo's inner narrative, and he's getting—he's like confused and alarmed that uh, Wesley keeps blocking him when he doesn't think he should be able to. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carita says, uh, it sounds like they just, they just love what they do, what they're doing. They love, uh, you know, the challenge of fighting each other. Remember, Inigo in the book is hoping for a challenge, and we see him hoping for that. Uh, in the movie, it's like that's, that, that hope is more richly rewarded. Isn't it good? Kate was just pointing that out, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Tom Hillman says, it's almost like irony. Everyone except the characters knows that it's tongue-in-cheek that separates it from the tension in the book. I agree. 
I agree. I don't think we're supposed to read this as Wesley is actually messing with Inigo, right? That Wesley is showboating and 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 uh, uh, making fun of him. They're serious, you know. The characters are serious. But you're right, Tom. We are given clear cues not to take it seriously. That distance, the kind of distance that is like dramatic irony, it's not exactly dramatic irony, but it's like it, I agree. That distance between us and the characters is being opened up. We know more of what's... We can see that it's not serious, but they're taking it seriously. And one effect, certainly, is to reduce the tension in the book. And to permit us, you know, Brianna, as you were recalling from your uh, early life experience of watching this, we don't have to choose, right? We're not being asked to choose whom we want to win, exactly. Um, Okay. More. Skipping forward here. But thinking of the same topic here, this is not an Inigo or uh, Fezzik moment. Uh, This is uh, Wesley in the Pit of Despair. But again, I want to think about the the same topic, the same question. That is, the way that the comic elements... Uh, work, how they invite us to relate to the story here. Going down the stairs. Almost falls, doesn't quite... I really like how obviously fake Wesley's injury is, right? He was meant to have his shoulder ripped open by an R.O.U.S., and uh, it couldn't be more obvious in this scene that there's just red paint applied to his shoulder. Um, And just in case we didn't really notice it here from this shot, that his shoulder is obviously perfectly whole, but it just has red paint on it, um, it's made more obvious by the fact that the albino is mopping the paint off of him to show his perfectly uninjured skin beneath it. Um, I know he's supposed to be cleaning up the blood, but again, that's where he got injured, and it's being cleaned away to show that he's... Anyway, sorry. soundtrack. That uh, that sliding note there at the end, so good. 
Um, uh, I remember when I first saw this movie laughing as hard at the albino clearing his throat as I laughed at any other moment in the film. Uh, I have always loved that um, that toying with not only sort of fairy tale tradition, but fantasy film tradition, right? Of the of the minion underling with the physical deformity and the and the tortured voice, right? Um, that's you know the pit of despair, and then he just clears his throat and he has a perfectly normal voice. Um, that's 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 just that's. But but again, what's the effect of that, right? What's the consequence of that? Um, See, Ed is telling me, you know, what Reiner said about why they put that. I don't care what Reiner says about why they put that in. What I care is what is the effect of the, of the fact that they did put it in, right? This is why I don't like commentary. One one of the reasons why I don't like commentaries, and one of the reasons why I don't uh, 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 don't just take what authors say about their own works or directors about their own films. Okay, that's fine. That's what he was thinking. But what's the effect? What does it do? The consequence is um, that it... uh, Well, what is the consequence? Like with the physical comedy during the duel, it distances us from it, right? It's a moment that draws our attention to our own expectations, right? To the stereotypes that this kind of film was invoking, right? That are being explicitly invoked. But they were already undermined. I loved... I drew attention to his sort of... Almost his near stumble as he's coming down the stairs. Um... Uh, you know the 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 kind of um, uh, the the way that it's already slightly deflated the drama of the moment. It's already been a bit undermined by the fact that our Igor character almost you know went sprawling down the stairs and dropped his tray, um, which would have been a, a, a pretty anticlimactic uh, beginning there, right? Um, uh, yeah. Now so. What's the effect? What's the, does it distance us from the story? Does it does it distance us from this as a fantasy story? Is it, does it ask us to mock that story? To look behind it? Again, this it, you know, in in my mind, it's like the questions we were asking about Buttercup in class number two. What are we What are we laughing at? Is it setting up the? Does it is it asking us to immerse ourselves in the fairy tale, or is it asking us to? criticize or even laugh at the fairy tale that again that one small example would seem to be pointing um uh in that way um we that i would also add the obviously fake elements i mean look at that for crying out loud yeah this is a low budget film but i mean goodness monty python and the holy grail had more realistic wounds in looking wounds in it than this and that was a lower budget film right um it's it's i mean that's that's funny come on that's funny that's exactly where he was supposed to be bitten by the rus and there's absolutely nothing there um Carita says she's not laughing at the story so much as at myself and my assumptions about fairy tales Carita, that's a really good distinction especially with the albino clearing his voice Right, we hear him start talking in this screechy, you know, not screechy voice, but in this, you know, in this wheezing, constrained voice, and 
we make the assumption like, oh yeah, that's just how like albino minions are supposed to sound. And then he clears his voice and we realize the joke is really on us, right? Um, Carolyn Good, we have an unreal... He's an albino who doesn't have uh, pink eyes either, so yeah, he's sort of uh, also unrealistic in that way. Unrealistic in the sense of it, it's sort of... The, the, the sets are kind of half-hearted. And again, that seems to just to draw our attention to um, the falseness of this as a story, right? The reminder that what we're seeing is fake. And I don't think this is just a failure of the representation. Um, one or two elements I would accept is that. But again, that, that's why I wanted to look at the sword fight. Those elements of the sword fight, which are, which break, which in a sense break the frame, you know, which sort of point out to us that it's, that it's fake, show how contrived it is. Our attention is being drawn to the fact that this is obviously staged. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah Lagarde says fake, like Morgan Stern's parentheticals. Yeah, kind of breaking the frame, kind of like that. Yeah, in a sense. Um, Brian Mahoney says, The comedy in the film gives the whole movie a unified tone. The tone is adventurous throughout and never really intense or suspenseful. Um, uh, It's a feel-good adventure where the good guys all win and the bad guys all get what they deserve. Well, isn't that interesting, Brian, from Mr. Life Isn't Fair and That's My Grand Epiphany in Life, isn't it? Well, I'll come back to that. Um... Let's keep going. The reunion! I am waiting for you, Vicini. You told me to go back to the beginning. So I have. This is where I am, and this is where I'll stay. I will not be moved. Hold on! I don't know, Budge. Keep your hold <laughs> Keep the your hold gave orders. Sorry, <laughs> Vicini. When the job went wrong, you went back to the beginning. Well, this is where we got the job. So it's the beginning. And I am staying till Vicini comes. You fruit, come here! I am waiting for Vicini. Sure you are, Mimi. Love the, the hand thing. Hello. It's you. It's you. The music. The swell of music. It's you. Don't look so good. You don't smell so good either. Perhaps not. I feel fine. Fezzik and Inigo were reunited. And as Fezzik nursed his inebriated friend... I love how he cuts up the potatoes for him and the motion with the spoon on his face. So obvious, like like taking care of a baby. Mary Rose, the music, the swelling music being interrupted by the knocking out of the other brute. Yeah. For me. yeah. At my best, I could never defeat that many. 
Let Vecina to plan. I have no gift for strategy. But Vincent is dead. No. The the yeah the notice how Inigo is being. The, the, the counting on his fingers, Nancy, right? Yeah, to do 30 minus 10, you've got to count down on your fingers, right? Uh, and yeah, the, the, the big brother has become the little brother, Michael, absolutely. Um, how, you know, and how, how, how touching it is in the, you know, the reunion of these brothers that the one who was the little brother figure is now, you know, he's, he's now like the mother hen, right? You know, the scraping of his chin with the spoon. I mean, anyone who's ever fed babies recognizes that gesture, right? It's just adorable. Um, um, so, show, so we're seeing here a kind of reciprocity, right? You know, the last interaction we had between Inigo and Fezzik was that confident nod, you know, that uh, Inigo gave to Fezzik. Don't worry, I got this, right? No problem. And now we see him like a baby being... T- it's just... Oh, it's so uh, it's so cute. Carolyn says that counting is hard with a massive hangover. I get it. Yeah, you, 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 yes, that's... True enough. True enough. But anyway, okay. Let's uh, let's uh, finish this up here, because we're gonna we shift into it we're now. You know, we had the sort of the 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 adorable comedy, right, of taking care of him, and then we've got the and and, and then the buckets now. Not to be seen. I need the man in black. What music? Look, he bested you with strength, your greatness. He bested me with steel. You must have outthought Vicini. And a man who can do that can plan my castle onslaught any day. Let's go. Where? In the men in black, obviously. But you don't know where he is. Don't bother me with trifles. After 20 years, at last my father's soul will be at peace. There will be blood tonight! Don't bother me with trifles is uh, one of the lines that I really like to quote uh, under similar circumstances. Um... His faith, Inigo's faith, uh, his need, his helplessness, right? Poor guy can't even subtract 10 from 30. Uh, his helplessness, his knowledge of his own helplessness, and his need for somehow... And his, he was, so he was relying on Vizzini, holding out for Vizzini, even though Vizzini was so horrible, uh, and not did not even seem to really have his full respect. Um, but yet his faith that not only can Wesley help him, but that, and that somehow by getting the man in black's help, uh, it, you know, it, everything will be able to work out fine. But even as Nancy points out, his assumption that the man in black would help him um, is, uh, uh, is, is again, just sort of delightful. We're not, I don't think we're laughing anymore here. Right, um, I mean, there's some comedy in the line. Uh, Anyone who can do that can plan my castle on- onslaught any day. Right, um, that's a funny line, um, but it, uh, but you know, but there will be blood tonight, and his, you know, his 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 happiness and confidence in his expression. Um, yeah, no, you're right, Sarah. He does have more reason to think it in the film that Wesley will help him. He does have more reason to think that in the film than he did in the book. Right, because in the book, um, he didn't have that conversation where he told his story to the man in black. Um, here we saw that connection between the two of them, and Sarah Lagarde, as you're reminding us, um, his uh, uh, you know Wesley's uh, hope, his expressed hope that he would find him someday, his obvious sympathy uh, for for Inigo's quest. A few more. <laughs> 
Here is a scene entirely absent from the book. All of the compression that we're doing, and we've added this one from whole cloth. Not this part. The latter part. You know which part I mean. You get that from this grove, yes? Fezzik, check his memory. I'm sorry, Nigo. I didn't mean to try him so hard. You, Nigo? This part. Father, I have failed you for 20 years. Look at the sunlight coming down. Our misery can end. Somewhere, somewhere close by is a man who can help us. I cannot find him alone. I need you. Look at the halo around Indigo. I need you to guide my sword. Guide my Please. sword. The, guide my sword. The way that those words kind of ripple out through the whole story, guide my sword. A sudden stop and apparent disappointment. It didn't work. And again, I love that dragging note, musical note. Um, uh, a couple of you are pointing, of course, to the absence of the zoo. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were cutting the zoo because they didn't have time for it. But we added that sequence, right? Because apparently we did have time for that. Um, I, again, I, I find that I find this this absolutely fascinating. Remember also, of course, the scene earlier in the film where Count Rugen himself, the guy who presumably designed this thing. Um, can't remember which one is the secret knot. Uh, and it's particularly comical because uh, from all angles, you can always tell exactly where the door is. It's, I mean, the frame of, you know, dwarf doors may be designed not to be seen when shut, but this one certainly isn't. I mean, look at it. You can see the frame all the way around the secret door in the tree, right? Um, but yet Count Rugen can't remember which one is the secret knot. That, uh, that 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 swings open the door, and here he, so Inigo prays to the spirit of his father, asking for guidance. Guidance with that like over the top, you know, halo coming down, and uh, uh, and and it works, even though he briefly despairs. Right in his moment of brief despair, yet nevertheless, the aid that he was seeking is given. What we lose, well, okay, one of the things we lose by losing the zoo, and in particular losing Fezzik and Inigo's trip through the zoo, you'll remember that when we looked at those passages in the book, um, the, those moments in the zoo are really important. We talked about those as like the Descent to the Underworld uh, passage for our uh, epic heroes, Inigo and Fezzik. Um, that moment is the, those moments are the moments in the book when they sort of take control of their identities, right? When they kind of turn things around, when they overcome their fears and, uh, and and all that kind of thing. We, you know, lose that in the film version 
but we uh, we gain something entirely different. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Nancy, I think, and Nancy asks, are we meant to believe that the soul of Domingo Montoya responded? Yes. I mean, I don't see how we don't take that here. Um, it's statistically unlikely that he would happen to lean upon the secret knot that Count Rugen himself had such a hard time finding, right? This addition I find fascinating because it is adding an element of romance to the story, and of course I don't mean that in, a, in an erotic sense, um, but it's adding an element of the marvelous to the story that didn't exist in the book at all. Um, and that's, I think, pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Brianna Melvin says, the spirit of this sword's maker that still dwells within it is a lot nicer than, <laughs> than the spirit of the, of the sword's maker that dwells in Turin's sword. Uh, yeah, true enough, true enough, Brianna. Um, yeah, guide my sword, exactly. Again, the question of what are we laughing at here? What is the effect of our laughter? That's a miracle, Bill. Chocolate coating makes it go down easier, but you have to wait 15 minutes for full potency, and you shouldn't go in swimming after for at least what? An, an hour. Yeah, an a hour. good hour. A good yeah. hour. Thank you for everything. Okay. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. Think it'll work? It would take a miracle. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, here's uh, Miracle Max and Valerie undermining the uh, yeah the swimming comment. Um, Carrie, it is is my favorite line there. Yeah, a good hour, right? That's that's it's my favorite part. Um, do you remember what we're getting? Um, uh, do you remember what we're getting in the book at that point? We're getting these references to how the pill is not going to work like they think it's going to work, and how he only has he has less time than he thinks he's going to have, and all that stuff, right? Um, and here we're getting don't go in swimming for 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 at least an hour afterwards, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, and then. They're muttering to each other at the end. Do you think it will work? It'll take a miracle. Bye bye. Right. That even the have fun storming the castle, one of the most famous lines from the whole film, um, puts the whole thing in, an, in sort of an obviously absurd context. Have fun storming the castle. Right. Um, so we're laughing at the story again. We're laughing at the fantasy element of the story. We're laughing at the improbability of the story. That is, uh, the the fact that we're moving towards what seems like an increasingly unlikely fairy tale ending. Um, that's what we're laughing at. Um, Rachel Draper says, didn't they just get a miracle in the form of a pill? Yes, they did. They did. 
Um, I'm making less of an emphasis on that because uh, um, uh, because that's consistent between the book and the film. So if that's a joke, that's a consistent joke. Um, this element is, uh, I, I think, differently done in the film than in the book. Um, but um, and we don't even get. The, I mean, we see how big it is, but remember that in the book they have to work it down his throat with their hands, such that when Wesley revives, he feels their hands on his neck and accuses them of strangling him. Right? He 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 suspects that he was strangled. Um, so we don't we don't get any of that kind of emphasis uh, in the in the in the film. Um, Interesting. Kate Wolf's come back to that question. Kate Neville says, I wonder how much the film frame changes our reception. We're much more aware of the fact that a little boy is hearing it, and we trust that the miracle is going to work. Um, yeah, good. And Nancy points out how the chocolate here is, is funny rather than mystical. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Nancy, you're right. In the book, there was sort of an urgent question about the chocolate, right? Whereas here, it's just, the chocolate coating makes it go down easier. Um yeah, the, the 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 sort of comically kind of parental um, stance of Valerie and 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 uh, uh, and, and 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 you know uh, Miracle Max here is um, you know with the with the chocolate coating makes it go down easier and don't go in swimming for an hour afterwards. Um, yeah, good, Carita. I might be laughing a bit at the disbelief they have in their own miracle pill. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it would take a miracle for the miracle pill to work, he says, right. Um, but it does work, right? Um, in as much as at moments we seem to be being distanced from the marvelous, right? From the, these fantasy tropes, nevertheless, they keep happening, right? Um, the miracle pill works great, and uh, and uh, the the uh, I mean it's. And, and the you know and he does the 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 father does guide his sword, um, if we're gonna do we have to get to the end of Inigo's story right, even if maybe we go a tiny little bit over time. Kill the Dark One and the Giant, but leave the third for questioning. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I love Fezzik and the Man in Black looking at each other. I still call Wesley the Man in Black. I tend to think of, of him that way throughout the film, actually. Um, yeah, Nancy Rugen turning tail and fleeing is a this wonderful moment, right? On the one hand, it's a it's a shattering anticlimax, right? I mean, we've 
we had, and it was such a moving moment, and several of you made exclamations of pleasure when we were watching it before, when Inigo first does his, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya, right? Um, and now he's finally doing it, right? This is the, I mean, this is the realization of his dream for 20 years. He's been looking forward to this moment. He is finally standing before his father's killer and saying his line and ready to say, begin, right? And then the dude turns around and runs away, right? Now, again, that happens in the book. It's consistent, right? It's not that this is a big and major change, but does it undermine that moment? What's the effect of that moment? Does it, does it sort of think like the albino, right? We're talking about how the albino moment, the, the albino clearing his throat moment, seems to invite us to laugh at ourselves for our own expectations, right? Um, does this have a similar kind of effect, right? Does this uh, have the effect of um, sort of getting us to laugh at ourselves? Yeah, we were ready for this climactic moment, and we want, you know, we were kind of leaning forward and you know, kind of clutching the comforter in our hands, like uh, like the young Fred Savages uh, uh, in the Frame story, and then, you know. It turns into a it turns into a chase instead. Um, yeah, Nancy Fosberg likes yes the the music good yeah the trumpet um, absolutely absolutely. I think the balance that this film attains between inviting us to laugh at the fantasy fairy tale frame and yet bringing us into it is a fa- I th- would argue it is a far more delicate balance delicately executed balance um, I certainly feel far more invested in the story itself in the film than I did in reading the book but this is a little bit of an unfair claim to make at this juncture, because we've only been looking at the Inigo and Fezzik story so far, and that was compelling in the book. I, as I said before, um, as I said before, we uh, um, in the book, if the book only gave us, the, you know, if the book wasn't called The Princess Bride, but what was that? What was our alternative? Uh, uh, um, uh, alternative uh, uh, story. It wasn't the Spanish tragedy. It was uh, uh, what, like the Spaniard's Revenge or something like that. Um, if that had been the title of the book and the, the center of the whole story, um, then I wouldn't... Yeah, the, the Revenge of the Spanish Swordmaker. Um, uh, the, the Revenge of the Spanish Swordmaker's Son. That's right. It was the... It was the it, that, that was our, our not very efficient title. Um, the, A Tale of Two Brothers. I, I don't like that. I like that. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, the, 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 the swordsman and the giant, I don't know. But uh, anyway, if that, then, then I would have felt that compulsion all the way through. I mean, if that had been... The, it's the Buttercup and, and, and Wesley story that distances me uh, from the plot and makes it really hard, especially at the end, at the ending of the story with Wesley and Buttercup, especially hard, as I was saying in last class, um, to really invest in it. Um, so let's, let's see. Let's see next time. Um... I'm actually going to stop. We'll start with the end of Inigo's story next time. I want to stop because even on my screen, my film is getting choppy. I think my poor computer is complaining about all the buffering that it's had to do. And I, I think I, I need to 
let it sort of purge itself and recollect itself. Uh, but anyway, so we'll start with that at the beginning of class next time, and then we'll go back and we'll look at Wesleyan Buttercup and we'll look at the frame, okay? Um, and see where does this, where does the film leave us compared to the book, and what do we see? What do we see going on there? What would we identify as the sort of essential difference in the effect of the movie compared to the effect um, of the uh, of the book? And I want to be coming back to some of the concluding remarks I was making about the end of the book this time and think about, again, to compare where we're left at the end of the film. All right, lots to do next time, but I think it's totally manageable. I think we can absolutely do it. Uh, thank you for bearing with me tonight, and I look forward to finishing up the film next time. Good night. <laughs>